me, I am now joined in the studio for this live discovering music by Brian Newbold, one of the world's leading authorities in Schubert. Probably no, nobody in the world knows more about Schubert's unfinished legacy and a colossal legacy that is. His performing version of fragments of the D major symphony, known as D708A, are already pretty well known. But tonight sees the first performance of a completion of the symphony, commissioned for Radio 3 for performance by the BBC Philharmonic here at the orchestra's new home at Salford Keys. Well, we'll hear a little later about how Brian's completed Schubert later, for later on in this programme. First, though, a bit about the background. Now, Brian, I'm sure, like many people, you would have started with the idea that there was an unfinished symphony by Schubert. One soon discovers that this is actually rather more complicated. Yes, I think it was the first work I heard of Schubert. Um, and it is more complicated because he began 13 symphonies. 13? At least, <laughs> and finished seven, which means that six were left unfinished. How extraordinary, isn't it? And in, in, in that... One keeps having to keep reminding oneself of how short his productive life was. From the productive life of 18 years, approximately. 18 years, yes. Mm. Now, what's really quite interesting, isn't it, is that we come to a cluster of significant unfinished, don't we, of which this is, is the first. That's right. Uh, the second, actually. The second? The oh, second. I beg your pardon. Okay. Um, oh, yes. there's D615, is that 615. Yes. Yes. We have to use the catalogue number because there isn't room... Um, in the numbering system, to squeeze four symphonies in between number six and eight. Mm. Oh, sorry, six and uh, no. yeah, six in it, yes. and, and uh, nine. Mm. Um, yes, uh, D six one five was the first, and this happened after the sixth symphony. And I have the feeling that with the sixth symphony, where there is a certain Rossini influence, of course, which we'll come to, he he wasn't quite sure that that was his way forward, and he struggled a bit. So mm. there are then. These unfinished D six one five D seven oh eight A number seven in E and the unfinished, and they're all unfinished in well certainly the, the last three you mentioned are unfinished in quite different ways, aren't they? They are yes. The first two of these are in piano score. He simply wrote in piano score and left fragments. D six one five has fragments of only two movements, but the one we're hearing tonight there were fragments of all four movements. And then, of course, as you know, number seven um, is not in piano score at all, but he took orchestral paper and he actually mapped out all the, uh, the paper and only filled, for the most part, one stave. So there is one instrumental line only for two-thirds of that symphony. It's quite a different way of going about writing a symphony. It is, isn't it? Do you think he was thinking, I've actually got to try and... Something else, some other way of getting ideas out on paper. Yes, it, I, it's a slightly more complicated story than that because I think that the first six symphony, including the one we've just heard, was written like that, straight into score. Mm. He was so fluent. And, of course, it was a faster way of doing it, in a, in, in a way, ultimately, because you didn't have to write out your score twice, <laughs> once in piano score and once for orchestra. So you've hinted that there's some sort of crisis going on in Schubert's symphonic thinking here. One thing, that, one thing that strikes me, um, looking at Schubert's music up to this point, is that the songs often take Schubert into remarkable new territory. The symphonies, in a way, I wouldn't say they're lagging behind, because they've got some adventurous music in them too, but in a way, is it that he's having difficulty reconciling where he's going, generally speaking, with the, the classical constraints of the symphony? Yes, I think it, it was much harder for him to come to terms with um, pure instrumental writing. 
and uh, he made a very early start. As you know, we've heard this week some of these fragments uh, with Deutsch number two, <laughs> yeah, yes. where he, he might have written 40 bars or so. Um, he made an early start, and I think that it's true to say that of um, the first 40 works catalogued chronologically, um, only eight were vocal and the rest were instrumental, so he was really trying to, to make headway. But, of course, he reached maturity much earlier in the, in the song, as we all know from the years 1814 and 15 with Gretchen and uh, the Earl King. There he is writing one of the two of the defining masterpieces of the German Indeed. romantic leader repertory in his teens. Yes, but it? then we have to remember to complete the answer, um, or to take it a little bit further, that um, songwriting was a reactive sort of composition, mm. and instrumental was a proactive. The forms dictated by the words. To That's right. Yes. He didn't have anything to go on. He didn't have a text to go on. He simply oh. had to... Uh, so he was much more making his own ways. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, yes. Now, you can sense something of this tension between the classical model and this desire to move into something a bit more adventurous right at the beginning of the Symphony D708, can't you? You can, can't you, yes. Mm. When he, uh, he starts off with this very spirited theme with a lot of short notes flying around in the strings, and then suddenly we reach this huge chord, which is a very unexpected chord. Um, it's quite a remarkable opening. This is something new in Schubert. Suddenly, um, you, you feel that almost that he's, he's at sea and he's not quite sure where he's going. And the ship finally finishes up in a most extraordinary key, an unprecedented key. Yes, it's A-flat, which I think is as far as possible as you can get from the, the home key, isn't Just it? Just about, isn't yes. it? Yes. And it is unprecedented. No one has had so far in a symphony or a sonata or a chamber work put the second theme into a key that distance. Not even Beethoven would have done Not that. Beethoven. It is an extraordinary thing. Now, the sound of the orchestra, now I'm sure many people will be able to tell from that brief extract we've heard already, is still basically the sound of the classical Haydn, Mozart, early Beethoven orchestra, isn't it? That's it, yes. up to Beethoven's second, mm. yes, with double woodwind, two horns, two trumpets and tips. Mm, which was an incredibly serviceable size of orchestra. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. One that yes. a lot of people returned to over and over again. Now, in the next unfinished symphony, number seven in inverted commas, mm. in E major, he introduces something quite new, and this is the sound of a trio of trombones. And when you hear the beginning of the symphony in E major after that, you can tell already that there's a great deal more richness, more brassy sonority in the middle and lower registers of the orchestra. A 
very distinctive sound, and immediately you it can is. tell, aha, we're in later Schubert here. Yes, that's you? right. Yes. Do you, why do you think that the trombones were so helpful? It wasn't just a question of sonority or of extra tone weight, was it? No. It wasn't. And uh, one of the most difficult things I had to decide in the case of D708A was, have we reached the stage where Schubert would be writing for trombones, or had we not? He hadn't used them in the first six. And um, I decided in the end that I would not use trombones. And if I can just briefly explain the, the, the situation, it is that the trombone and the horn, for example, both at this time had a range, a compass of two and a half octaves. If you go to the piano and play right up for two and a half octaves using the black and the white notes, there are 31 notes. The trombone could play all those 31 notes, but the horn could only play 11 of them. There were huge gaps. The horn is really stuck in and around the home key, isn't That's it? right, and yes. the trumpets could only play ten of them. And <laughs> yes. the notes um, were chosen, as it were, by, or not quite by the composer, but almost according to the key of the piece. Mm. So they work very well in D major in this symphony, mm. but in the key of A flat there's no note available. And there's a lot of this sort of thing going on That's in right. reaching out. I mean, do you think this is possibly one of the reasons why he ran into a brick wall with this I symphony? think so. I think he decided in the finale, I really need trombones for practical advantage. Mm. But I'm not quite in the with trombones sort of spectrum of sound yet. I think perhaps I will put this symphony aside and I will quickly go and write another symphony in which I use the trombones from the start and they really colour mm. the whole thing. Hence the next symphony. Yes, yes, and the next symphony. And it's possible that it was only a couple of months after putting this aside that he began the symphony. Quite possible with Schubert. <laughs> um, what about indications of orchestration? Sometimes you can infer just from the look of something on the page this kind of sound, but does, does Schubert actually provide any hints for you as to important uh, instrumental colours? Yes, he writes an instrumental name five times in the symphony, spread across various moons. So there's one in the finale, the very beginning, the first tune, is for flute. We'll hear that in a moment or two, but I think it's also worth mentioning that sometimes this causes you a little problem, I think. There's a, there's a clarinet solo indicated in the slow movement. That's right. There's a clarinet solo in the slow movement which takes the instrument very high. I mean, for those who wish to know, it's a written G sounding E above the stave. Um, and it's very difficult to control that note. And something similar happens in the trio of the, th of the third movement. Um, but it is what Schubert wrote, and so I thought I should respect that because I didn't really want to change anything. And listening to the BBC Philharmonic in the rehearsal this afternoon, the, the clarinetist is certainly capable of doing it. Certainly, absolutely. So. You mentioned the flute there. I think this is a lovely, lovely point to hear, I think, at the, the beginning of the finale, because it is just such a delicious and irresistible colouring and seems to belong to the music so intrinsically. It does.
Rossini, mm-hmm. you definitely hear hints of Rossini in that, particularly in the crescendo at the Certainly, end. Yes. Uh, uh, Rossini was very, very fashionable in Vienna, wasn't he? At this he time? was, mm. yes. For uh, five years, there'd been a regular Rossini season. And uh, uh, the public were really they adored Rossini, and Schubert himself was was bowled over by by the style, and he couldn't help use, um, adopting it in places. At the same time, there is that great shadow of Beethoven, somewhat less fashionable now in these post-Napoleonic times, but still there. But yes, still there. Still there, very much so. Now, is he simply keen to follow Beethoven's example in the symphony, or is he moving to something? more idiosyncratic here. He's certainly moving away to other things, and yet even in his last years we still hear little bits of homage. Mm. There is homage to Beethoven all over. We heard it in that first symphony um, with the second subject in both the outer movements, which is always almost an echo of the Prometheus theme of Beethoven. And then in the Eroica too, yes. yes, Obviously haunted him. Yes. Now there's that remarkable letter, isn't there, of, of Schubert's, where he says in the mid twenties that he's planning a path to write to grand symphony. He wants to write That's a grand right. symphony. Yes. This is clearly the, going to be the great C major, <laughs> and yes. he describes how the quartets in A minor and D minor, which we regard as some of the masterpieces of the medium now, mm. were sort of stepping stones to this. As the same with the octet as well. Does this show that this this, pro- this problem is absolutely central for Schubert? This how I master the symphony thing is it the most important thing? for him, do you think? I think it probably was the most important. And he spent so long uh, between number six and nine getting it right, as it were. Um, and yes, those works were very important. I think structurally, not particularly for the scoring, but from the, for, um, for grasping structural problems. Mm. Now, one thing that intrigues me is, is, I remember talking to Tony Payne about this, about his completion of Elgar's Third, Third Symphony, when it's a question, when Schubert provides you with something relatively solid, do you simply say, right, that's what he finished, uh, we'll use it? Or, is, uh, or are there times when it's necessary, perhaps, to do a little bit of adaptation? Um, in, uh, For instance, I, I think you said something about the rhythm of the, of the, of the theme of the slow movement. Yes, um, I think there's only the one instance where um, I, I did change something, but I think I did it with Schubert's blessing. Uh, <laughs> because at the very beginning, he has a dotted rhythm, da 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 but thereafter, when that little figure comes back in the theme, it's always even notes, uh, like that. So I decided that in the first bar, it really should be even notes as well. Well, that's rather nice, because in the recording we have of the performing version of the Fragments of the Symphony by Charles McCarris and the Scottish Symphony Orchestra, Scottish Chamber Orchestra, it, 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 you transcribe it simply as, as Schubert wrote it, so we can exactly. hear it now, da-da-da, at first, and then immediately afterwards, da-da-da, and never again do that's we hear right. da-da-da. That was how he wrote it, and I hope he forgives me. <laughs>
those major minor shadings there. That's very authentic, Schubert, isn't it? They're always there, aren't they? Mm. Yes. He's a composer who seems to switch between moods quite strongly. right. Of course, it's not always a simple switch. You don't necessarily hear sadness in the minor Mm. and the opposite of the major. No, it can be quite different from that. It's subtle. It is very subtle. To the question of subtlety, of course, mm. we, we, we really need to answer the question, but how it is that you've inferred your completions in this, because in some cases, particularly the development sections in the outer movements, there isn't a lot to indicate what Schubert might have wanted at this point, is there? So what have you done? There isn't. Mm. <laughs> in fact, in the uh, first section of the, um, of the first movement, Schubert uh, treats his material almost exhaustively, so, you know, there's nothing left to be done. Well, all I can say is is that it's difficult, and what I do in these instances, I get to know the sketch, the fragment, so well that I've memorised it. I can think about it then at any time of day or night. And I almost reach the stage where I can kid myself I composed it. Because I actually would love to have been alive composing music at that time, because I think the language was in such um, a, a, a an almost perfect state, if I could use that word. I, I, it is a period that particularly appeals to me, so I do know what you yes. mean. But I'm also reminded, of, I mentioned um, to Anthony Payne a moment ago, him saying that some of the ideas of Elgar that he used in the Third Symphony was almost like discovering a packet of old seeds and planting them and discovered that they still had the power to grow. Yes, This yes. material is so fertile, it's isn't like it? It's like that, yes. Yes. There's something marvellous about the way composers like Beethoven and Schubert are able to create material that just seems to tell you where it wants to go. That's right. And in the end, it, 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 I won't say it became easy, but yes, I felt that things began to flow naturally, uh, but the ear must judge. Well, we'll leave it to the ears of our listeners to see if they can guess where authentic Schubert ends and uh, inauthentic, as it were, Schubert begins. But uh, certainly, I, I'm, I'm interested that the, the movement that was nearest to completion when Schubert left this symphony was the scherzo because there seems to be a particularly special vitality about this this music. Yes, there is. And, of course, it comes largely from counterpoint. Of course, here is an important difference between song and symphony that you get very little counterpoint in the sense of voices imitating each other, parts imitating each other in song, but in symphony, Schubert felt he needed it, just as his precursors did, and Mozart's 40th symphony, which was his favourite Mozart symphony, the development sections of the outer movements are full of strong counterpoint, and Schubert wanted to perfect this, and here... He makes a pretty good start. Well, there's a delicious example of this at the beginning of the scherzo and the idea that keeps coming back, because on the one level, it's a beautiful bit of academic, imitative writing. On the other hand, it's just so full of life. It's isn't a, it? It just brings it's 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 a spring into a bit. Yeah. It's absolutely the opposite of learned counterpoint, isn't it? Quite so. Thank you. 
taste of Schubert's unfinished symphony in D, D708A, the scherzo in a recording by the Scottish Chamber Orchestra conducted by Sir Charles McCarris. And before that, Brian Newbold was talking to me about his new completion of this symphony, which now has its first performance here at Salford Keys by the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra and conductor Juan Jomena. I should remind listeners at this point that Brian Newbold's completion of Schubert's next unfinished symphony, the so-called number seven in E major, will be broadcast here on Radio 3 tomorrow afternoon, along with his completion of the 10th. Again, you have to say so-called 10th. The number issue is very, very complicated in relation to these fragments. The symphony in D, 708A, was planned in four movements. In the first, second, and fourth, Schubert left virtually complete first sections in piano score, from which, as Brian Newbold said, a great deal can be inferred about how they might have continued. Indeed, he says it's possible even to compose on Schubert's behalf once the material's inside your head. At this stage, Schubert was still working very much within his own versions of classical formal conventions. However, in the scherzo third movement, the piano score's almost complete, and it's astonishing to think that having got so close to completing this movement, Schubert put it away, and apart from taking one tiny motive for the scherzo of his great C major symphony, he never thought of using any of it anywhere else.